This episode is brought to you by PNC Bank. Some things should be boring, like banking. Boring is safe and reliable. You don't want your bank to be exciting or unexpected. Unexpected is for podcasts about bizarre scientific revelations, not banks. PNC Bank strives to be boring with your money so you can be happily fulfilled with your life. PNC Bank, brilliantly boring since 1865. Brilliantly boring since 1865 is a service mark of the PNC Financial Services Group Bank. PNC Bank, National Association, member FDIC. I know I usually save my secrets for the end of the episode, but I'm going to tell you my secret favorite candy. It's Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. It's really Reese's anything, but Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the thing that I'm like, have I had a bad day? I get these. Have I had a good day? I get these. Chocolate, salty peanut butter, the textures. I love everything about them. Also that there's two. So I'm like, oh, I get this one for later, which is one second later. Anyway, Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. I love you. That's all. If you're me, you can shop Reese's Peanut Butter Cups now at a store near you. Found wherever candy is sold. And I am. No, hey. It's that TBT pick from when you wore baggy jeans and shell necklaces. Allie Ward. I'm back with a pop cultural psychological episode. It's going to become very dear to your heart because it's about why something is dear to your heart. First, you're dear to me, patrons. Thanks for paying a dollar or more a month to submit your questions to ologists. Thanks to everyone who talks and tweets about the show. Thanks to everyone leaving reviews, which I read every single one. I churn back at you, such as this one written this week by Michigander Lady T-Lav, who wrote, yeah, Love ologies. While sitting in my car in the elementary school pickup lane, I was listening to ologies with my windows down. And as another mom walked by, she shouted, Hey, that's ologies. I got so excited to happen upon another ologite in the wild. I became flummoxed and could only reply, Yeah, love ologies. Finding your own people. So fun. Lady T Love, so timely. You have no idea. So, Phanthropology. Let's do this episode. You ready? Okay, so Phanthropology is indeed a real term. It was coined by Kristen Longfield, a marketing strategist who used to work at Trailer Park. They make movie trailers, and they have a very confusing name if you are not in the entertainment business. But the fan part of Phanthropology comes from the word fanatic, which stemmed from the Latin for a temple or a sacred place. And fanatic meant insanely but divinely inspired. But we have been using it to mean a person who hella digs something since the mid-1600s, long before we had TV series to gobble up and comic books to love. Although, let's be honest, illuminated manuscripts from the Middle Ages, kind of like comic books, but with more horses and demon babies and gold leaf. But either way, this ologist happened to meet my now fiance a year or two ago, I think, and he demanded her business card to give me, and I have wanted to record this episode at least for a year. We're both LA-based, and we kept waiting for the pandemic to pass. But alas, we just recently recorded over the phone. And it was such a compelling and interesting look at why we love what we love. We talked for nearly two hours. Didn't even take a pee break, to be honest. I just adore her. So she studied communication and culture at Indiana University, go Hoosiers, and got her master's at UCLA in critical media studies and fan studies. She has been consulting and on staff as an anthropologist and a researcher at marketing firms and entertainment companies. She runs her own called Random Machine. We talked so long about so many things that y'all love that I could not cut this down into a single episode. So feast your ears on a delicious two-parter. Next week, we're going to dive in even more into stands versus fans. Where's the line? Shipping people, toxic fandoms, formulas on attaining internet fame. And this episode, you're about to hear, we lay all the groundwork uh, talking about the history of fandoms 
what a fandom even is. Disney bounding, her favorite things, and sports versus art fanatics, K-pop politics, Trekkies, Star Wars prequels, the curse of the algorithm, and what to do when your favorite books are penned by problematic trolls, creating your own fan base, self-identifying, morality, all kinds of stuff. So cozy up and get to know and love behavioral researcher and legit professional on her business card, unironically, fanthropologist Meredith Levine. And my pronouns are she, her. Great. Now, you are a fanthropologist. I am. <laughs> um, you're the first fanthropologist I have ever heard of. Are you the only one on Earth? I am by no means the only one on Earth. In fact, the title is not even of my origin. Oh. Um, the title I heard at um, while I was still in graduate school, I went to a session um, with a woman named Chris who was working at Trailer Park at the time, who now mm -hmm. has her own consultancy called Phanthropology. Hey. Um, and it matched on to what I was studying at the time and said, hey, I want to do that for a living. Mm -hmm. And so it stuck with me for the last 10 years of my professional career. It's so perfect. I, I love that it just kind of says everything. And it also is anthropological, right? It is. Um, and I use a lot of mixed methods research in my work. Increasingly, I'm using a lot of analytics dashboards on social platforms, mm -hmm. but I have done participant observation. I have done a quantitative research. I have done survey design and focus groups and um, all sorts of other methods that researchers would use in the field. And a lot of it is qualitative interpretation and very anthropological. Are you a fan of any particular thing that you feel like really has grasped your heart? Yes. Okay. Um, and my origin story of Phanthropology dates back to age 13 with a research project in middle school. Um, <laughs> so th there's a long history there as far as the, the professional interest is concerned. But my current fandoms are a little sad right now, as are um, many people's fandoms, because mm -hmm. I'm a fan of Disney theme parks. Oh, oh. And uh, so they're a little sad right now, but mm -hmm. um, that's okay. It mm -hmm. needs to be in order to be safe. Increasingly, I'm fans of fewer things just because of the nature of the experience of being a fan and how tied it is into identity. Mm -hmm. So I like to say I'm a fan of fans. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and my two biggest fandoms are Disney theme parks and Nerdfighteria, which is the fandom uh, centered around the internet properties of John and Hank Green, especially oh. the Vlogbrothers. Hank and John Green, if you don't know of them, have built a bit of a media empire after starting a vlog channel together in 2007. And they now have several channels under their umbrella, like Hank's SciShow. They're also both prolific writers. John is the author of The Fault in Our Stars. They have many titles between them. And they fundraise for their charity, which is called The Foundation to Decrease World Suck. And they are essentially trying to make the internet closer to the happiest place on earth. Oh, along those lines. Have you ever Disney bounded? I have Disney bounded and yeah. I've also done cosplay <laughs> and um, one of my favorite personal fan memories is 
Uh, several years back, I did a costume of the tightrope walker from the Haunted Mansion ride. Oh, my God. And bothered <laughs> and went during Halloween, which is one of the only times where when you get the extra ticket, adults can wear costumes in the park. And so I got to wear the costume in front of the Haunted Mansion, and I have some great photos from that. This tightrope walker, I looked it up, is in a petticoated dress and holds a parasol. And when the elevator drops, sorry, spoiler alert for the Haunted Mansion, you see that she's balanced on a rope right above the gaping jaws of a gator. What a costume. I'm not a professional cosplayer by any means or a professional Disney bounder. But yes, I have. I have done those things. Would you ever want any of your ashes scattered in the Haunted Mansion, even knowing that someone would just vacuum it up at the end of the day? No, because I know that people vacuum it up at the end of the day. (laughs) Oh, they know that, though. At this point, they know that maybe there might be an iota of them left, right? Yeah, and people try and do this a non-zero amount. And one of the most interesting (laughs) things about the Haunted Mansion is their air filtration system is so good that they have to keep faking the, like, dust. It's genuinely a really great air filtration system. Oh, my God. Okay, so you're 13 years old. When I was 13, like, digital media did not exist. We had, you know, like, laser discs or something. But um, at 13, what was your middle school project? So uh, I went to a middle school in Los Angeles, and Mm -hmm. we had a project called the iSearch, which was designed to teach us about research methodologies. Mm Mm-hmm. It was a year-long project where we got to choose our topic and then proceed to research it with a list of methodologies we had to do with like minimum levels of kinds of sources and do primary research and secondary research. And at the time, the first three Harry Potter books had come out. And mind you, I was not doing a research project on Harry Potter. Mm -hmm. I was doing a research project on Harry Potter fandom. One person couldn't feel all that. It'd explode. Ah. And I could sense that there was a there there because of the midnight book parties that were starting to happen at bookstores and the way it was sweeping through students at the school. And so my my 12-year-old, 13-year-old self went the route of, well, clearly we like this because it taps into archetypal characters and personality types, which is like <laughs> the angle I went for mm-hmm. uh, as 13-year-old me, which as 30-something-year-old me, I was not super far off. Nice. Um, because of the way that archetypal characters cater to our, our abilities to project our identities into them. It turns out the fandom is very identity-based, but that's where it started. I knew there was a there there. I read the only two nonfiction full-length books about Harry Potter at the time. One was a guidebook to all of the, like, Wiccan and witchcraft references. And the other was a how-to-teach-it-in-school source book for English teachers. Ah! You know, we did a Potterology episode about a chemist in Nebraska who uses Potter spells to talk about high-level chemistry, which is really cool. It um, is, that is really cool. Yeah, she's very passionate about it. 
Side note, I have since added a disclaimer on that episode's show notes that says, since this episode was first released, J.K. Rowling has said and written some deeply transphobic sentiments. And for this, Allie no longer stands nor supports her. So in listening to this episode, let's marvel at the ologist herself and her love of chemistry and remember that feminism is intersectional and trans women are women and trans folks are welcome and beloved in the ologies universe. Okay, let's talk about fictitious people. Um... When you talk about archetypal characters, is there some basis or is there some correlation between like what personality psychologists find, like, you know, N E N J R or whatever, like E. Uh, yeah, Myers Briggs type stuff. <laughs> yes, thank you. <laughs> so um in I haven't gone the psychological route, but um I had the opportunity to work on an amazing study in twenty sixteen under the guidance of a business anthropologist. Mm -hmm. named Susan Kresnica. She's amazing and a genius. And we did a year-long study of fans and fandom about what the experience of being a fan is at its most essential levels mm -hmm. and how being fans differ depending on what you're a fan of. Oh. And we, the framework we used for that was moral foundations theory, the framework established by Jonathan Haidt in his book, The Righteous Mind. For a deeper dive, I'll link that Jonathan Haidt book, The Righteous Mind, Why Good People Are Divided by Politics and Religion. But as for right now, I will just scream, yes, why, 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 though, into the sky. And Meredith explains. Mm -hmm. And so fandoms do differ based on the way they perceive morality in the world. Fandom is a proxy for our identities. So where do archetypal characters fit in? our abilities to see ourselves reflected mm -hmm. or our future selves reflected because aspects of identity are different depending on what people are fans of. So like sports fandom has a very interesting sense of placemaking that media fandom and music fandom does not necessarily have. And what is placemaking exactly? It's ties to space. So mm -hmm. with sports fans, often they are fans because they were born into it mm -hmm. based on where they grew up. Yeah. Um, I'm saying they because I'm not specifically a sports fan, <laughs> but uh, I totally understand it because it's where you grew up. Oftentimes people are born into it and it's a family tradition, yeah. in which case being a fan of a team from home helps contribute to a sense of home. Mm -hmm. We've also seen in some of the research that we did that fans, sports fans will also adopt new teams if they're moving to new homes as a way to feel more at home in the new place they're in and connect with other people who are in that new place. Have you ever done any studies on why sports fanatics in general use the first person plural when like we are going to win or they're going to win when we're at home, we're eating nachos, we are absolutely not doing any physical exertion? <laughs> why is it a we? Because it's so it's such a proxy for identity. Mm, okay. Like going down the street wearing a jersey, you see mm -hmm. someone else wearing the same jersey, <laughs> and there's a sense of kinship there. Uh -huh. um, same thing with like if you're on a date or at a networking mixer or something, and someone's wearing like jewelry that's oddly specific to a very niche thing, and you notice it's mm -hmm. we're finding our like minded people and expressing ourselves. Mm -hmm. um, and the way we use fandom, and this was such an interesting thing from this study, is oftentimes it's to express ourselves, 
mm-hmm. but also to build community and to create self-care rituals. Um, oh, in terms of like rituals? Really? Yeah, like mood regulation and experiencing feelings in a safe way mm-hmm. as preparation for real world feelings and exploring new feelings as a way to get a full range of human emotions. One of the frameworks we thought of in the beginning that is often talked about in the fan studies discourse is if fandom is a proxy for religion, there are reasons why they're similar, there are reasons why they're different. Meredith says that while sports might make you feel belonging to a certain set of values about right or wrong or particular rituals, religion requires, for the most part, unwavering faith. And spirituality and religion also address things like life after death, philosophies you're not going to get from wearing a hat shaped like cheese. My gosh, I have I have so many questions for you. I'm so sorry. <laughs> so oh, <ask>. interesting. <laughs> Ask, and you can edit this part out, but like, I've got nothing but time today. So as much time as you want to take, I am happy to chat. That's right, my babies. This is going to be a two-parter about why we love things. Okay, I'm going to double back. Exactly what is fandom? It's such a basic question, but like, what is it? How do you define just like liking something versus being a fan? So we asked that question in the research, Mm -hmm. uh, under Susan's research, and one can like something and not be a fan of it, and one can identify as a fan of it. Fandom is the portmanteau of fanatic and kingdom, oh. or dom as the suffix of, like, realm of. Wow. Um, okay. And it was first used to in religious contexts, uh, and then it was used in baseball, and now it's used mostly in media. And so fandom has a few different definitions. There's fandom with a capital F when you're saying, like, the fandom. Mm -hmm. which is generally in reference to a group of media fans who express a certain set of behaviors that largely revolve around transformative works and cultures and fan labor and creativity. Mm -hmm. This is when you think of like fan fiction and shipping and that sort of thing is associated with the fandom, which Mm -hmm. can be IP specific or in general based on these practices. But then you have fandom, which can be a proxy for the experience of being a fan, because that's a mouthful, or any community of fans. So, like, not all sports fans will say they're part of a fandom. Yeah. They'll say they're a fan of this thing. Right. Whereas fandom is more commonly used in those uh, spaces of transformative works and cultures. Like books and movie franchises. Okay, that makes sense. And then when it comes, again, to those, like, archetypes and identities... Do you find that there are certain archetypes that keep getting repeated? Like, I remember, do you remember the show Gilligan's Island? Have you ever heard this theory? Yeah. Uh, about, uh, no, please tell me the theory. <laughs> the theory that um, each of the seven people on Gilligan's Island represents a sin from the Bible, from sloth to, um, to greed. I'm going to run through these really fast. Coveting, Mr. Howell. Anger, Mrs. Howell. Lust. Ginger, gluttony, the skipper, envy, Marianne, sloth, Gilligan, and pride, the professor. Pride is also vanity, which I didn't know, but that's what asides are for. So it's like they all represent a, a sin and they're in purgatory. I don't know. If you remember. That's a great theory. I'm following so far. <laughs> yeah. But, um, you know, are there certain kind of stamps of people that when people are creating you know, fictional works, they know this is a part of our personality that is going to 
really identify with this character. Like, do we identify with all the characters because of different facets within ourselves? Or do typically people find a character that they say, I'm, um, I'm, I'm a, a Carrie. Solo. Yeah, I'm a Carrie. Exactly. Yeah. It's so personal. Mm-hmm. It's so personal because it's how someone sees themselves. Right now, my husband and I are watching Frasier for the first time as adults. <laughs> Good evening, Dr. Crane. Dr. Sternen, it's uh, nice to see you again. <laughs> and everyone there is so relatable to us, <laughs> but I can also understand how that's not the case for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. And so it really depends on sense of self and how people conceive of themselves and how their identities change over time and their value systems change over time. Um, for example, like I am a Hermione, but also I'm not a Gryffindor. There's seeing yourself in characters, but then there's also the world building and the negative space to play around in. And one of the things that we love about Frasier right now is how much negative space there is. And so in in the history of fan studies, one of the typical examples of more is not always better, sometimes more is just more, mm-hmm. is midichlorians in, in Star Wars. It's oh, from the okay. prequels. Midichlorians are a microscopic life form that resides within all living cells. They live inside me. Inside your cells, yes. And we are symbionts with them. Symbionts? Life forms living together for mutual advantage. Without the midichlorians, life could not exist, and we would have no knowledge of the Force. They continually speak to us, telling us the will of the Force. So from what I gather, your metachlorians are kind of like your microbiome, but instead of good poops and more serotonin, you can like perform telekinesis. Now you can check out the microbiology episode to learn how your gut party works on earth if you are not a Jedi Knight. And Jarrett would also like to add that metachlorians sounds too much like mitochondria and he thinks it's too on the nose. Like, ugh, come on. Right, Jarrett? Uh, that is what I think. Thank you. Cool. People did not want to know how the force worked. We did not need this information. This was too much information because it squeezed out room for imagination. Mm -hmm. Like it squeezed all of the imagination out of it. We did not need a canonical explanation of like why the force exists because our conceptions of it and thoughts around it were doing so much of a service two fans that the explanation was one worse than what we would think of and (laughs) two filling in this vital negative space Mm. where fans can project and imagine ah got it that makes so much sense and so frazier has a lot of negative space it has a lot of negative space it's a show with like like we're i don't know halfway through season one Mm -hmm. and one of the characters wives is referenced and we never meet her and we don't see her (laughs) like she's just like talked about while she's not in the room Mm -hmm. and there's a lot of negative space there to imagine and play and the same is true this is why a lot of like multiverse time travel genre fair also Mm. it's one of the reasons why i think that that pulls so much fandom is because when you have that when you have a very nebulous metaphor for others and outsiders as like aliens tend to be mm-hmm. there's infinite possibilities right to play 
Is that why maybe sci-fi and, um, you know, Star Trek, Star Wars, Rick and Morty has maybe a more engaged or zealous fandom because it lets their mind run around within the universe? Yes. And also infrastructure. Mm-hmm. Um, so Star Wars is uh, Star Wars and Star Trek have two different kinds of infrastructure mm-hmm. built around them. And fan scholars will all cite a book called Enterprising Women mm-hmm. about the history of female Star Trek fans. Right. And the role of that. This was the 1992 publication, Enterprising Women, Television Fandom and the Creation of Popular Myth by Camille Bacon-Smith, who examined how fan fiction written by women was often derided, and even prominent, proficient, or heroic female characters have been frowned upon as being too unrealistic. And this trope is called a Mary Sue, and it's a complex issue in fanfic circles, I found out, by reading too many blogs. But oftentimes finding fans in like the 70s and 80s of nerd culture stuff, Mm -hmm. it was still a time when well-roundedness in people Mm -hmm. was a desired trait as opposed to being well lopsided. Oh, okay. Whereas Mm -hmm. in a narrow casted world where everything is niche, being well lopsided can be a way to find a community. And so sci-fi also has this culture of gathering and of sharing mm-hmm. of zines and like home edits of VHS tapes and having conventions. Um, pulp and science fiction literature have had conventions since like the early 1900s. And so there were gathering places and ways to like meet people who were similar to you. And with that came a lot of safe havens for people who may not have had other safe havens. So like the comic book shop mm-hmm. was a place for nerds to go and be welcome. Someone has mixed an amazing Spider-Man in with the Peter Parker, the Spectacular Spider-Man series. This will not stand. As opposed to school, where that may not have been the case, or home, where that may not have been the case. And so there is this community-building element to it as well. And how do you feel about the sustainability of that community-building as niche? Is there any part of you that's watched geek culture and nerd culture be commodified to where it's no longer something that is a subculture? Yeah, this is in parallel with media history. Mm -hmm. So sports fandom can be inherited because sports teams have been around long enough to be inherited. Mm -hmm. We're just now hitting the point where media franchises can be inherited. So like oh. Dis- Disney has been inherited for generations. Mm-hmm. Like go to Disneyland, go to Disney World, and grandparents are just as much fans <laughs> as their four-year-old grandchildren. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's a lot of longevity there because it's intergenerational and can be taught from parent to child and part of home culture, where sports fandom generally was part of home culture. It was broadcast on televisions and people would gather in bars. And so there's that. But now we're hitting a point in media history and media distribution where something that wasn't on the air or isn't on the air anymore can discover new fandom. For example, binging old Frasier episodes at the touch of a button without needing a film archivist and a dusty projector. Or is around in franchise form to be discovered and rediscovered by generation after generation. And so now we're in the point where media can be big, more mainstream fandoms Mm. in general, Mm -hmm. Um, especially with 
properties that have been around for more than 10 years that have robust cultures around them that are pretty easy to find somebody else who likes those things, mm. a la Star Wars, Star Trek, Doctor Who. Right. Supernatural, that sort of thing. Oh, I forgot to ask, what, um, what Harry Potter house are you? You're not Gryffindor. I am not Gryffindor. I am... I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a Ravenclaw, and if I had to pick a second house, it would be Slytherin. <laughs> From my limited knowledge, I think you are a Ravenclaw. You're so, like, academic and brainy and analytical and smart, but that is me only knowing you for 15, 20 minutes, but of my limited knowledge. <laughs> I'm definitely a knowledge for the sake of knowledge kind of person. <laughs> um, and then I think the secondary trait might be ambition, which gets a really bad rap. It does. According to Harry as an unreliable narrator. And uh, <laughs> the things I could say about the Harry Potter fandom also of like what happens when you have a body of work that trains a generation of people to be activist because of the themes in the text mm-hmm. and like what it's actually representing to people at a young age only to be expanded, commodified and lose those activist undertones in the narrative itself and also like the author Mm. um and so basically a generation of fans were raised to be more liberal Uh than the franchise was willing or able to sustain yeah greater than the sum of its parts yeah um yeah and i was gonna ask how you felt about that um because i know so many people who grew up on it are not disappointed but devastated rightfully by the personal choices that the authors made and opinions that and platforms like um is there any kind of um grief of identity or disillusionment that you have noticed or felt yes mm, yeah i'd call that a big yes uh it's mourning the loss of what was a big part of one's identity mm-hmm. yeah because we have all these frameworks and all of this cultural shorthand amongst a generation of people who were raised on these texts mm-hmm. who now have the question of should this be an intergenerational ip Mm, like, right. do I teach this to my children? Where is the merit of the story versus all of the stuff surrounding the story? And what are the ethics of financially supporting an institution that people no longer agree with? Mm-hmm. I'm so disheartened by it and grossed out. But um, it's it's not woven into necessarily my history the way it is, you know, some other people's. But that was definitely a question we got from patrons. It's like, what do you do? Especially since things like appropriating indigenous language about spirit animals is like, well, Patronus is a better way to say that. And now it's like, you know, like there's all these shorthands that felt like a safe, uh, inclusive space that's no longer feels that way, you know? Yeah. And the question is also like how much how much does the infrastructure behind the IP and the author impact the experience of the IP? And Mm -hmm. from a literate media perspective, it's, well, the answer to that is a lot because of how the intersection of media and storytelling and commerce Mm -hmm. of like, well, do you support the Fantastic Beasts franchise as a result or Mm -hmm. not? Do you continue to buy merch or not? Or do you only buy merch by like fan artists? Or to what extent is this artist making livelihoods? And where where does all of that intersect? And all of that is deeply personal and very complicated. And yeah. I wish there was a good right answer. But the answer is it's deeply personal and really complicated. Yeah. So from what I understand, it's really complicated and deeply personal. I mean, real talk, would it be easier if she were not alive still? I'm not in any way talking about putting a hit on her, and I hope she knows what I mean. Does she know what I mean? 
Do you know what I mean? Yeah. The way it is to separate the the art from the artist in posthumous works, you know? Yeah. I mean, maybe. There's also yeah. the like John Green notion of books belong to their readers, mm. of like the author doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. um, so also it depends on the kind of fan one is and if authorial intent matters mm -hmm. or is only what matters what's what ended up on the page. Right. Oh, that's so interesting. You know, you mentioned um, really early on something about a kind of moral parallel to the fandoms that you you choose. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? What fandoms tend to have what ideals? Yeah. So media fandoms tend to be a little bit more um, liberal and activist. Mm -hmm. Sports fandoms tend to be a little bit more conservative. Okay. Music fandoms tend to be very, like, live and let live. Okay. <laughs> Music fandoms also, like, really experience flow states from their fandoms. Ooh, what does that mean? So, like, a scholar whose name I'm about to butcher. That's okay. Mihai Chingsetmihai. Okay. Did a lot of research on flow states. And... With music, it's easy to like be at a concert or be listening to an album or something and feel the state of timelessness, effortlessness, sensory richness. This was discussed in the book Stealing Fire by Stephen Kotler and Jamie Wheel, who called this flow state STIR, S-T-E-R. Selflessness, like a sense of self disappears. Timelessness, hours just seem like minutes microseconds can drag on and you can see them in vivid detail, effortlessness, and are for richness, gaining a lot of info and insight and really vivid detail again. So according to their book, getting into this flow state increases creativity and productivity by 400%. So sick jams, the cure for what ails us. When you have a moment where the, the world feels bigger than yourself and mm. you feel connected as like just one tiny piece of this giant electric mm. experience of life. Yeah. And that everything just kind of melts away for a little bit. Yeah. Uh, there's a book called Stealing Fire, all about this and how people get to this state. Music is one of those things. So are like adrenaline junkie type things like base jumping or <laughs> skydiving. So our meditation is like the slow, long road. Drugs are the fast, kind of dangerous road. There are a lot of ways to achieve this state, and it's one of those states that people genuinely love being in. Mm -hmm. Maybe because of that, do anthropologists think that music fans are less judgmental? Yeah, a little bit. I mean, now, so the internet also has changed a lot of that experience for some kinds of fans, depending on how internet literate they are and how organized and activist they are. Mm -hmm. um, and so... Like K-pop fans are really good, <laughs> and this 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 past year has shown Ugh. just how good K-pop fans are at like organizing for something outside of their cause in order to wreak a little pro-social <laughs> trolling <laughs> on parts of the internet that they do not agree with. Ugh, such goblins um, for good. I goblins for good. Yeah, like. <laughs> They're a delight. Um, <laughs> they're a delight and a force not to be messed with. Yes. Why is that? Why do you think they're so pro-social, so organized, so zealous? Um, I know I have a niece, Sophia, who is a big K-pop fan. And what do we find, especially in, in that age group? Maybe it's gender identifying specific. Is 
is there a reason why K-pop just gets its hooks in people's hearts? So I haven't done a ton of research on this subject, and I'm sure there are a lot of scholars in the fan studies community who have taken dives extensively into it. But from my more broad experience researching fandom, there's the internet nature of it and a concept that Henry Jenkins, I think, I think it was Henry Jenkins coined called pop cosmopolitanism, Mm -hmm. which is essentially being a citizen of the world and importing your culture from elsewhere. Mm -hmm. And that used to be very difficult in the days of anime and manga and like coded VHS per country code and like needing to mail things. Mm. And (laughs) that used to be prohibitively difficult. Yeah. But with online spaces, it is now much, much easier. There's a lot more of an opening to what life is like in other places. I mean, Mm -hmm. K-pop and J-pop have a little bit more of like an androgynous culture about them. Asian country is also a little bit more like communally oriented. And part of it, I think, is just now. Like this is all happening at a time when Gen Z Mm -hmm. has access to it. And I was at CES a couple of years ago listening to a longitudinal study about generational differences. Mm -hmm. And Gen Z is different from preceding generations because of how pro-social they are. They are much more community oriented and much less individually minded. Mm Mm-hmm than prior generations is there any knowledge that you have on how they got that way because i feel like with the rise of social media in the last you know 13 15 years there was such so many drums being beaten about like this is going to be the most narcissistic set of assholes the world has ever raised and then they're like the most (laughs) pro-social like how did that how did that happen That's a great question. Um, I think part of it has to do with thinking about the cultures of the generations around them and the world that they're inheriting. Mm. So, like, I still was at the tail end of a generation who, like, played outside in the middle of my street with neighbor kids. Mm -hmm. Yeah, me too. I don't know to what extent that happens now unsupervised. I don't have kids, uh, but I would be curious from listeners of the pod like mm-hmm. whether or not that's i mean covid aside like pre covid is that still a thing mm. that like parents do because oftentimes with device culture like the device is the connectivity to friends mm-hmm. in absence of geographic communities right I wondered, do parents let their kids play outside? And in Googling it, I found out that there are actually laws now making it illegal to just let your kids peace out and hit the park solo, despite crime rates being lower than they were perhaps a generation ago. And I don't have kids. I just have one very hairy daughter, and I have to watch her like a hawk outside so she doesn't feast on cat poo. So we all have different challenges. Now, speaking of challenges in parenting, each week we donate to a cause of the ologist choosing and Meredith chose Partner in Health's and the Sierra Leonean Ministry of Health's work to reduce maternal mortality in Sierra Leone's Kono district. And that money will go toward everything from hiring more community health workers to building and supplying a maternal care center of excellence and a neonatal intensive care unit. And this effort was organized by the Vlog Brothers Green and more info about it can be found in the link in the show notes. And that was made possible by sponsors of the show who I'm going to talk about for a second. 
This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Listen, we're all carrying around just a backpack of stressors and sadnesses. When we keep them all zipped up and the load gets heavier, it can start to affect us negatively. You start to feel misunderstood, sad, resentful. A safe place to unpack that is, you guessed it, therapy. Therapists can help you dump out your bag and work through the heavy garbage that's weighing you down, in my case at least. I've used BetterHelp. They have definitely helped me understand that pushing my feelings down does not actually make them go away. It makes them feel worse. So if you've been thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient and flexible. It's suited to your schedule. You fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist. It's so much faster and easier than trying to hunt down a therapist from just online listings and cold calling. That's one thing I love about BetterHelp. And if for any reason you're not vibing with your therapist, you can switch anytime, no additional charge, no drama. So unburden yourself and trauma dump onto someone who's trained for this. So get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash ologies today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P.com slash ologies. Oh, KiwiCo. We love you. Kids love you. Parents love you. Uncle Allie's love you. Here's the deal. So whether you're staying at home or you're heading out on some summer explorations, KiwiCo is inviting kids, also kids at heart, that's you, to enjoy their first ever summer adventure series. So kids from two years old to teens can receive six hands-on science and art project kits over six weeks. They have something for everyone. They have different topics for each age, whether your kid wants to explore space or learn about dinosaurs. And I've heard from my parental friends that summer can be a little challenging to keep the kids busy. Kiwi goes like, we did the legwork for you. And the Summer Adventure Series is this personalized experience with super fun activities like a bottle rocket kit where kids can build an actual bottle rocket. And you can either receive all of your summer adventure crates at once or weekly for six weeks. I think it's so amazing that they have different crates for different ages. Everything from the great outdoors that has like giant bubbles or a window garden to a trebuchet kit for ages 9 to 14. An entrepreneur where you can do textured clay projects. If you have kids, if you know kids, keep them occupied and learning and having fun this summer with KiwiCo. And you can get 20% off your summer adventure series at kiwico.com slash ologies summer. That's 20% off your summer adventure at kiwico.com slash ologies summer. Oh, have fun. Oh, it's heating up. It's time to say bye now to your jackets and your sweaters and your tights and get reacquainted with shorts and tees, breezy things. Can I point you to the direction of Quince? What I love about Quince, you can build a lineup of timeless pieces that keep you looking effortlessly chic year after year without spending a fortune. They have premium European linen dresses, blouses, and shorts. They start at $30. They have washable silk tops. And I love that all Quince items are priced 50 to 80% less than similar brands because they partner directly with top factories. They cut out the cost of the middleman and then they pass the savings on to you. So whether you need a sundress you can wear to a picnic or you need some good t-shirts or tanks that feel nice on your skin and are well-made, head over to Quince. I love them so much I put them on my body. That's what clothes are for. Get warm weather ready with Quince. Go to quince.com slash ologies for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. That's Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash ologies to get free shipping and 365 day returns. Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash ologies. Oh, hi, it's me, the lady that checks a bunch of scholarly articles before she believes anything. Allie Ward. 
And I feel like we are similar in that we have a fair amount of skepticism and we like to dive deep and find out what the actual facts are. This is why when it comes to any kind of supplements, I enjoy Ritual, which is a female-founded B Corp, meaning that they're holding themselves accountable to not just the company, but also to the health of people in our planet. And they're clinically backed essential for women at 18 plus multivitamin has these high-quality, traceable key ingredients in bioavailable forms that are clean. Only about 1% of supplement brands are USP verified, and Ritual is one of them. So I like being able to trust what I'm putting in my body. From an aesthetic standpoint, I'll also tell you that Ritual are beautiful little vitamins. They look like lava lamps and they taste like mint. So taking my Ritual is part of my, I guess, morning ritual. I, that's probably why they named it that and I didn't even think about it. Anyway, no more shady business. Ritual's Essential for Women 18 Plus is a multivitamin you can actually trust. So get 25% off your first month at ritual.com ologies. You can start Ritual or add Essential for Women 18 Plus to your subscription today. That's ritual.com ologies for 25% off. Down the hatch. Okay, back to our interview. So Meredith continued saying that kids finding connection through devices is a double-edged sword. It's been great when we needed the physical distance of the last year in particular, but also that the content delivered is controlled algorithmically by the platform itself. And I could go on and on about algorithmic curation and its role in trends and culture, which is where a lot of my research is now. Ooh, oh my Um, gosh. This is where a, a lot of my research is now of like, creator culture and algorithmic trends and how that shapes communities and also how that shapes the creative process yeah. in in influencer culture and parasocial relationships. Like that's where a lot of my research is. Is the thesis that it's fucked or is it <laughs> is that the basic thesis that you are getting people are getting fucked by the algorithm? I feel very lucky that podcasts seem untouched by the algorithm and I'm knocking on like all of the wood possible. But it seems like the algorithm is like capital T, capital A, and it feels a little bit like a specter. So, yes and no. In prior media eras, there was commercial exchange for the piece of media in Mm -hmm. a lot of instances. Yeah. Like movie tickets Mm -hmm. or live shows or something like that. In the olden days, you paid dollars of money to see stuff. Such that having a good end product was the point. Mm-hmm. Media was a product. And some industries can get away with still treating it that way, especially because the metrics of success often come from a body of peers giving out awards, mm-hmm. where metrics of success can be decoupled from commercial success. Think movies and Oscars, maybe even streaming services that are ad-free and eligible for Emmys and Academy Awards and Golden Globes and SAG Awards and Tonys and Grammys. So prestige, trophies, bragging rights, face masks that match your couture gown, and lots of publicity. Ah, okay. Um, But now we're in a place where the creation of media, media is not the point. Like, it's not a product. It's a process because the business models have changed in a lot of instances such that what matters is not the product, it's the process. Because what's happening is it's an industry of audience development where we're shifting into attention economics here of like, what is the value of an audience who is receptive to messaging? Ah. And this is where it's going to get meta and weird, I guess, because here I am talking about this to you, a professional creator in front of an audience (laughs) who enjoys listening to you and maybe would be happy to hear you read the phone book. Um, I don't know what that meant. (laughs) But 
like there's a lot that goes with that because there is the process of getting better over time mm-hmm. where like the early work if revisited is noticeably worse oh yeah than oh, contemporary sure. work but that's oh, part of the process and part of the point because there is this emotional ownership and stake in these businesses because the model is so transparent mm-hmm. it is without an audience this work would not exist yeah versus if you're at like a major film studio there are a zillion layers mm-hmm. between the audience and the creative process yeah because media is viewed as a product not a process mm-hmm. and so in those instances where media is a product not a process it is absolutely counterintuitive to contemporary methods of distribution namely algorithmically distributed platforms mm-hmm. because measurement is different in the amazing Futurology episode with Flash Forward's Rose Eveleth, we talked about the adage coined by a guy named Andrew Lewis, who once mused via a comment on Metafilter, if you're not paying for it, you're not the customer. You are the product being sold. And attention economy right there in a nutshell, folks, which is one reason why I love Patreon so much, but that's a whole other episode. Whether you're an advertiser measuring like the impact of a campaign or a creator like measuring like success metrics for a YouTuber or podcaster or whatever, Mm -hmm. they're very different things. If you're concerned with opening box office weekend, that's time bound. It either hits or it doesn't, which is essentially saying like the viral video strategy. It's either good or it isn't straight out of the gate. Yeah. As opposed to the platforms providing distribution, altering that distribution via algorithms to weigh the better producing or emerging products, Meredith explains. So it's the the person who is disseminating the product is kind of like putting their thumb on on the scale, sort of like, well, let's take eyeballs away from this, which is getting mediocre eyeballs, and let's throw those eyeballs on this thing, which is getting a little bit better to sort of propel it. Yeah, or like some creator made a creative choice to do something different. Mm-hmm. And a fewer percentage of that audience stuck around to care about it. Mm-hmm. Let's just stop showing that content to those people Uh, because clearly they have stopped being interested regardless of any actions they have taken or not taken to indicate disinterest. Yeah, that is so terrifying for creators because it's like you (laughs) to grow as a creator and to keep your fan base engaged. It seems like you do need to have growth. You do need to keep things interesting. But at the same time, if you take a creative risk that someone doesn't like, say 10% of people dip, you could fuck your whole career. Well, temporarily. 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 Right. Uh, Because with enough uh, persistence, Mm -hmm. like, the rebuilding process happens. But, like, it's like the stock market almost of, Mm. like, stuff happens and then people get spooked Mm -hmm. and then new people... show up again depending on what the thing is in the 1970s -hmm. if you didn't like a creative decision on television (laughs) you got to write a letter to a studio Uh, yeah (laughs) with no guarantee that anybody would read it yeah and now all that has to happen is a tweet yeah and if people are sufficiently unhappy it's possible to community organize to get a lot of people to tweet. I just uh, read a book 
called So You've Been Publicly Shamed. Just <laughs> just read that one. And it's really interesting because it means that shame can be wielded by communities in any direction because that's the that's one of the big tools that they have. So mm. like K-pop is really interesting right now because they're not wielding shame, they're wielding randomness. Mhm. Like this whole like pictures of pancakes for the million maga march thing. Right. Like they're wielding internet culture to mm-hmm. like derail things. The pen is mightier than the sword and the meme is mightier than the pen is what we're learning. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> pretty much. Meredith says that businesses are starting to realize that the object of fandom, the influencer or the TikTok star, wouldn't exist as a commodity without the fandom supporting and flocking to and fueling it. So the pandemic brought this to light even further. And like we're starting to see this with sports a little bit because there are no stadiums with live sports fans. And so now... Like, where do they congregate and where do they go and how do these businesses sustain themselves and what happens to their, like, licensing and merchandising divisions? And, like, there are all of these networks built up in these business models around communities being able to congregate Mm -hmm. and have these experiences. Now there's threat to identity as much as there is the ability to find and choose and build identity as well. How do you feel about names for fandoms like Trekkies, Twihards, Ologites, for example? I feel like that's something you can't name yourself, but someone else can name it and then you can go along with it. Where do those come from? How long have those been happening? I think it's really important, personally, Mm -hmm. uh, to be able to address the community as a name. They come from a sense of community and a sense of like wanting to actually belong. I mean, ultimately, as humans, we all want to belong. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's a really important thing to have if it works. Mm -hmm. Like Beyonce has the beehive and there are Swifties. There are a lot of them. And sometimes they come from point of origin unknown, possibly a journalist, possibly fans themselves, possibly something that someone said offhand as an object of fandom. Um, I haven't dove super deep into the etymology of names of fandoms, but I think from a community building perspective, it's important. Mm -hmm. You know what would be amazing is if Vonnegut fans called themselves the Grand Faloons. (laughs) Have you ever read a lot of Vonnegut? (laughs) Only in school. (laughs) Like Vonnegut used to talk about how a grand faloon is like a group of people who think they're connected but they're not like hoosiers but yeah. um <laughs> like the grand oh are you a grand faloon i am as well but okay i just looked on the book website goodreads and there is a kurt vonnegut fan club and they are called the kurt vonnegut fan club okay this is a big question i feel like has come up in the last couple of years um people who are called famous for the sake of being famous or famous for being famous. What is the difference between an influencer and a celebrity? I feel like celebrity is still a compliment, but an influencer, there's something kind of snide about that. Um, how does that come up in anthropology? So the whole study of celebrity and fame mm-hmm. um, is almost like the inverse process of fanthropology where fandom is concerned with the community Mm -hmm. and like celebrity fame is object of fandom but celebrity and fame generally refers to a person okay rather than like ip okay so like one can be famous or a celebrity uh helen zaltzman on the illusionist had like a great episode Mm. of that 
This was the October 2020 episode of The Illusionist titled Celebrity. It also happens to feature Hank Green as well. Hello, Hank. Also, for more of the just phenomenal Helen Zaltzman, you can listen to her ologies episode, which is etymology, and you can listen to me, fanatic girl, over her. The other thing about like celebrity and fame is mm-hmm. oftentimes one of the distinctions he made that I really liked is like, do you care about their personal lives or not? Mm. Not everybody cares about the personal lives, just the work. Like Jennifer Aniston is famous, but like, do we care about her personal life? And would you buy a t-shirt with her on it? I mean, I do care about her personal life just a little bit. I just want for her to be happy and for tabloids to stop painting her, a fit, wealthy woman, as a tragedy because she didn't have a lot of babies and she went through a divorce. So yes, maybe I do care a tiny bit. And maybe I did Google Jennifer Aniston t-shirts. And aside from the 98% of search returns that were just paparazzi photos of her wearing a thin shirt when it was apparently a little chilly out, I did find some shirts with her face on them. And earnestly, there was one that was just wall-to-wall all over full color print of various stages of Aniston and hairstyles, all her face. And no joke, I kind of want to wear this shirt, but I can't decide if it would be like post, post, post ironic or just too casually vulnerable anyway. That is totally up to you. (laughs) And like, this is one of those magical things where like the community of people who care imbues the power. Mm -hmm. And to stop caring... Like, willfully stop caring, not just like it fades out of your life, stop caring, Mm -hmm. is really hard. You do a lot of work, too, with brands and cultivating brands. And when you look at fandoms of IP or of people, how do you translate that to kind of encourage at least authenticity? This is the brand loyalty question. I didn't even know this was my question, but I love Meredith so much for knowing that this was going to come up. She rolls. Um, like, how does it translate to brands? So most people, many people will have brand loyalty, but not identify as a fan because the brand is not a proxy for identity necessarily, like on display proxy of identity. Mm -hmm. Um, if you go into someone's house, which I'm just that kind of nosy person who does, (laughs) um, like if I'm back, back when there used to be dinner parties. Mm -hmm. Um, I was the kind of person who would absolutely go look in the fridge of the host. (laughs) I'm telling you, I love her. (laughs) Like, because everything, like, from my perspective, what you own is also a proxy for a value system. Mm -hmm. Which is why aesthetic, I think, has come up so much in, like, internet culture of, like, cottagecore or, like, bohemian. Because... It's the kind of thing that is a little bit more of a beacon, and there are some assumptions to be made of you based on brands. What does it mean if you have Tom's of Maine toothpaste? Is anybody going to be a fan of Tom's of Maine toothpaste? When I say this, I'm sure someone in the comments will be like, well, I'm a fan of Tom's of Maine toothpaste. (laughs) Um, But really, or do you just like it and are using the word fan as a proxy for the idea of liking something? Is it the kind of thing that you would wear merch for or like talk to other people about um so there is brand loyalty which largely has to do with did you inherit the brand is it what you grew up with um or does it serve a function for you that such that other brands can't compete 
I was reading some white paper, I think, that was talking about how we inherit our mother's tampon brands. <laughs> and like and like something big has to be different. There either has to be like big innovation such that it makes it a markedly better product mm-hmm. or there is some other factor like price point that shapes a choice other than that choice, mm-hmm. which I can say is true for me. And with toothpaste was true for me until my dentist recommended I use toothpaste for sensitive teeth. And then <laughs> I deviated from my family's inherited brand mm-hmm. uh, because of a, a product, a, a feature of the product. And sometimes it can be about identity. So like you have like Tom's Shoes and values-based brands, the whole concept of a benefit corporation and nonprofits as brands and like transparency of production. You know, those feel good, do good brands that we gravitate toward, like moths to an energy efficient LED light. Because it turns out that the story of the product is a story that in telling reflects on ourselves. Mm, Okay. So like if you were to come into my home, I would tell you the story of our dining room table, which was my grandmother's, which was a Gerald McCabe dining table, which came from a collaboration he did with a furniture maker and an architect in the era of mid-century furniture, which was unusual because Gerald McCabe primarily made guitars. Mm. Yeah, but like, the table is a table. You've probably mm-hmm. seen a lot like it. But the story of the table is more interesting than the object itself. And so mm. are we building social capital for ourselves when we get to tell the story of the brands and products we surround ourselves with? Mm. Got um, it. Which is a different thing than fandom. It's, it is personal social capital building of like, are you a tastemaker in your friend circle? Is this an interesting story? Is this something that reflects some level of values for you? Like conservation and ecology or upcycling or vintage culture or wellness and holistic medicine like if i were to come into a friend's house and it was you know dream catchers and poofs and (laughs) burning incense you know that's a whole vibe Mm -hmm. that communicates (laughs) like a belief system and a value system P.S. Weave the dream catchers to indigenous folks as they're an item originating with the Ojibwe people and not something you should casually buy cheap knockoffs of or make yourself out of stuff from Hobby Lobby because it's boho. I'm saying this to make it less awkward. I feel like Steakums is killing it. I don't know if you've seen Steakums on Twitter, but just... Real chef's kiss. They've just been, they like, it's a frozen beef brand, but whoever they got as their social media manager just goes full on about like progressive politics. I should say not so much progressive politics, but pro-science sentiments, which I feel like in the heart of 2020's anti-mask movement was important. On April 6, 2020, Stakeham's official verified account tweeted, Friendly reminder, in times of uncertainty and misinformation, anecdotes are not data. Good data is carefully measured and collected information based on a range of subject-dependent factors, including, but not limited to, controlled variables, meta-analysis, and randomization. 19,000 retweets, 70,000 likes. Who knew 2020 could deliver a blast of fresh air from the bullhorn of a really disgusting processed meat product? So then follow-up question to you. Mm-hmm. Have you bought Steakums? I've thought about it. I've thought about it. And then I'm like, mm, I'm trying to eat less beef. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, yeah, like, because there are also, there's also the, like, 
everyone now has to be a publisher mm, yeah. type mentality that exists with the internet that means the product can't stand on its own anymore because now every brand is in the audience development game mm-hmm. and every brand wants fans. Right. Like everyone wants fans. Right. I think probably to a point. It's interesting because um, actually I'm going to make us go through Patreon questions because there are questions I want to ask you that patrons asked. And so I'm going to ask it. There are questions through my mouth. Is that cool? Great. Okay. Let's do it. (laughs) So next week we will ask this very smart and lovely person plenty of pretty basic questions because that's how we do it around here. Now, whether you're trying to build a brand for yourself or you want to have more perspective on why you like what you do and why you like other people who like what you do, tune in next week. Trust me, we cover all kinds of really juicy stuff. Meanwhile, you can follow at Meredith Jean on Twitter and on Clubhouse, where she's been leading discussions on things like fandom and the attention economy. You can follow me, Allie Ward, at Allie Ward on Twitter and Instagram. We're also at Ologies on both. You can join the Facebook Ologies podcast group. Thank you, Aaron Talbert, for adminning that. You can find other Ologites in the wild with merch at ologiesmerch.com. Thank you, Shannon Veldes and Bonnie Dutch of the comedy podcast. You are that for managing that. Thank you, Noelle Dilworth, for helping manage all my shoot and recording schedules, which I'm very bad at. Thanks, Emily White and all the transcribers for making transcripts available on our website at alleywar.com slash ologies extras. There's a link to those. They are free. The link is in the show notes as well as bleeped episodes. Thank you, Kayla Patton, for bleeping them. Thank you, editors, Jared Sleeper, who hosts Quarantine Calisthenics every weekday at 9 a.m. Pacific on Twitch. And to Jurassic Park fanatic and kitty lover, Stephen Ray Morris of the podcast See Jurassic Right and the Percast and the new Everything But the Movie, a Star Wars books podcast. Uh, Nick Thorburn of the Very Good Band Islands wrote and played the theme music. And at the end of each episode, I tell a secret. And this week, the secret is I was able to get my first Moderna shot this past week because I work on an educational TV show and I can't wear a mask on camera for it. And I travel a lot for it. And I'm really so thrilled to be vaccinated. I can't even tell you. The rollout in California has been a little weird. Last week, they were shelving or throwing away more vaccine doses than they were administering. So there were tons of open Dodger Stadium appointments. And as I was waiting in the car to get the shot, I scrawled thank you and a heart on my arm in ballpoint pen to surprise the health tech who gave me the shot. And it was very corny, but they liked it. And I'm glad I did it. And my arm hurt for a couple days. But my heart has never been more at ease. So I hope your turn comes soon. And I hope when it does that you take it. Okay, until next week, I'm a fan of you. Bye-bye. Pachydermatology, homeology, cryptozoology, lithology, nanotechnology, meteorology, One of-